Good morning. Good morning. Welcome on a beautiful frosty morning to worship here at Sandy Ridge. Welcome to visitors. Glad you're here. And feel free to take part in the worship service with us. Have some beautiful flowers and decorations here in front of me. I was wondering <clears throat> if that's to remember the season or if that's a subtle hint for the, the husbands and uh, boyfriends out here. So take note. Glad you're here. Let's ask the Lord to join us in worship. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you that we can freely come on this Lord's Day and worship you. As we look into your word, I pray that you would show us your truth, show us what you want us to see. Help us, Lord, to be able to hear with our spiritual ears. And Lord, I just pray that nothing would hinder the word from reaching our hearts this morning. I also pray, Lord, you give us the strength, the courage, and the willingness to do what you call us to. And we, uh, we want you to be honored and glorified in this service. We ask you to be here with us. In the worthy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The last time I was on to preach, about a month ago, we had cold. And so we canceled church. And so what I intended to preach that Sunday probably had a little bit more in mind of the new year and what's coming. And I debated about, do I still preach this or have we moved on? And I got to thinking, we are already halfway through February almost. And it's always amazing how quickly a new year comes and before you know it, you're well underway. And whatever goals and visions you may have had at the beginning, um, it's already time for a checkup to see where, <clears throat> how's it going, where are we at? I had been preaching or have been preaching a, a series through the Beatitudes, more of a focus on the, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And this is also out of Matthew, but it's actually further on. Uh, Matthew chapter 14 is where I'd like to take the message from this morning. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. And as you think back to maybe a month ago, <clears throat> as we started off 2024, and I hope you took some time to reflect and I know it doesn't take a new year to do that, but there are times when we need to just look back over our life, maybe the previous year or the previous six months, and reflect on what's, what's happening, what's going on in, in my heart, what's going on in my life. Sometimes we reflect on some of the wins, some of the losses, uh, some of the joys, some of the sorrows. There have been some more recent sorrows here in our church the last couple weeks, some deaths. Those things are heavy. Maybe you reflect back on some accomplishments or some things you wish you would have got done. Maybe you had some ambitions and goals that you wish you could have accomplished and you, you missed them or opportunities that uh, you wish you would have taken advantage of. <clears throat> Reflection is not so much for us to, to look back maybe and beat ourselves up, but it is sometimes to evaluate what's the trajectory of my life, where am I going, and is what I'm doing now, or in the last maybe six months, is it pointing in the direction that I've intended to go with my life? And it causes us to stop and say, maybe I need to realign, get back on track, and align myself with God and his purposes. But I want you now to think of a forward-thinking question for the rest of this year. If God had his way with you in 2024, and by that I mean if you were completely yielded and obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit's working in your heart and in your life, 
what do you think he would want to do through you this year? And let me ask it another way. If you basically got yourself out of the way this year, what do you think God would want to do with you? Maybe it's nothing dramatic, but think about that. If you have your Bibles at uh, Matthew chapter 14, this is a story. And maybe I'll give you the context before we read the story. So prior to Matthew chapter 14, if you go back to about chapter 10, Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples two by two, and he told them to go to the house of Israel, not to the Gentiles, but you go and you preach the gospel of the kingdom. And as he sent them, he gave them power to heal and to perform some miracles. And so off they go, they are sent. And they did this. In fact, this is a very exciting time to the disciples. When they come back and they've gone out in Jesus' name and they've experienced some of what their future ministry would actually look like, but they get a bit of a taste of it. And I'm sure as they saw themselves being used and Jesus gave them this authority and this power, they were excited about the work of the kingdom. So they come back. And soon after this, I think it's about chapter 11, we get an account of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ. We know that John was uh, a very faithful preacher. John was on the wilderness, and you know how the crowds came. But now John is languishing in prison, and his life has taken a turn that probably was unexpected. In fact, John is, is wondering, was this really what I thought it was. And so John sends his couple of his disciples to Jesus. And they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for someone else? You know how that story goes. Jesus verifies to John the Baptist. He tells his disciples, well, in fact, I think there's a, there's a moment of time. I don't know how long it is, but he just, I can see them standing there and Jesus is in effect saying, just watch for a while. And he heals the sick and he he, uh, he makes the lame to walk, and he gives some sight to the blind. And he tells them, you go back and you tell John what you saw. Tell him that the lame are walking. Tell him that the blind are seeing. And he mentions these things, and he says, blessed is he who is not offended in me. Gives that encouragement to John the Baptist. That happens right before this story. Herod puts John the Baptist to death. Cuts off his head. <clears throat> and so all these things are happening. And then it leads up to yet another time when Jesus would have wanted to go get alone. He knows that John, his friend, his cousin, has been put to death. And he'd want to be alone, but the crowds come, and they come, and they gather. And so Jesus continues to teach and to preach. And then they have need, and there's need for food. And so we know the story of feeding the 5,000. And you see all these events coming together, and Jesus pouring out himself and you get to the end of this, and maybe from the perspective of Jesus, he's about worn out. But think of it from this, the view of the disciples. Uh, they got to be sent out, and they experienced the power of God, and the, the ability to, to do miracles. And they, they were preaching, and then they see this thing with the 5,000, and they were passing out the food themselves, and it was amazing. And clearly something is happening here, and it, it must have felt to them like, the kingdom of heaven really is a thing. Look at this. And Jesus is about to crown himself as king of this kingdom. I don't know what all their thoughts were, but I can see them internally seeing what's happening around them as moving towards uh, the fulfillment of what Jesus' ministry was all about. Well, here's where we start. Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to read the story here. <clears throat> it 
You want to connect me that back there? I don't, okay, there we go. Matthew chapter 14, we're going to read 22 to 33, says this. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship. Now I'm going to stop right there. And straightway meaning the miracle of the 5,000 had just happened. They pick up all the leftovers. Okay, so you're at the, the end of the climax of this event. And straightway, right after Jesus says, go get into a boat. And to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid." And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. A very familiar story to all of us. I'm sure on the heels of such an amazing miracle, this big event, I'm sure it would have been fun for the disciples to stay with Jesus and just kind of bask in this event. But Jesus, Jesus says, no, you need to go out on the lake. And what unfolds is this story that we just read. In fact, uh, the parallel account of this event in the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, 15, it says that Jesus perceived that the people would try to make him king by force. All right, so this is a big event. And so Jesus, knowing that, quickly got the crowds to go away and he sent the disciples away. This would have been a very comfortable position for the disciples to be in. I don't know how many of you have ever seen an eagle's nest um, we actually have bald eagles in Indiana, and it's, it's been kind of interesting the last number of years to see them. I've never been able to get up and look into a nest. They're usually way up, way up high, but as I understand it, most times when an eagle makes a nest, they take, you know, rough branches, they take brush, whatever they can find, and they'll go <clears throat> in a high spot, high up in a tree or on the side of a cliff, and they build this, this big structure, and they're actually quite large. Uh, they're much bigger than you would think when you, when you get up close. Very large structure, and so they have <clears throat> all this rough material that builds the nest, but then they go and they take padding, whether it's wool or feathers, things that they, they scavenge, and they bring it up into this nest, and they pad the nest, and they put layers of this until you've got yourself a pretty cushy nest up there, and that's the environment with which they like to have their young lay their eggs, and the little eaglets are hatched, and that's where they begin their life, and they begin to thrive. Well, of course, this is a very safe and comfortable environment. But over time, an eagle, as the, as the young are growing, uh, instinctively knows that this environment is not suitable long term. There's got to be something more here. <clears throat> I've heard different, I've, I've tried to study some of this. Um, I, I wasn't sure if the eagles actually push their young out or not to make them fly. I can't verify that. But one thing they, they do <clears throat> is in order to get to motivate the young to, to venture out and to move on to more mature behavior, they, uh, 
they start to stir up the nest. And so the eagle will go and, and with its talons pull up that wool or that, uh, the feathers, the, uh, the wool they find, whatever it is that they found that padded that nest. They start to pull this up. Well, of course, the little prickly sticks and thorns, whatever built the structure of the nest, start to poke through and it becomes a very uncomfortable place. Well, instinctively, uh, the mother knows that the more uncomfortable the place becomes, the more motivated its young are to, to venture out and find something better. So this and other urgings eventually prompt growing eagles to leave their comfortable nest and move on to more mature behavior. Now, I would say most of us are not that unlike, first of all, the eagles, but also we're not that unlike the disciples who, when they were experiencing what felt, which was really a miraculous time, it was some good times and Jesus was showing them some things, but that wasn't quite all that Jesus had for them. And I, I can just see how <clears throat> the comfort of things going really well and seeing progress and seeing fruit had to feel really good to the disciples. But Jesus, like the mother eagle, I think he thought, you know, it's time for the disciples to experience something different. Because it says he constrained them. He sent them out in a boat knowing full well what's going to happen that night. <clears throat> Most of us never choose difficult things. Most of us never... Well, maybe you're different than I. Now, if you're working out or exercising or on a diet, then you are choosing difficult things because you know that there's a good outcome at the end. But most times in our general nature, we don't typically choose the kinds of things that actually push us to more mature uh, growth in our life. But this is, I think, what Jesus is attempting to do. So some observations here. We already mentioned Jesus constrained his disciples to go into the ship. The second uh, part here <clears throat> is that Jesus sent them, but he's on, alone on the side of the mountain somewhere. And while the disciples are struggling in the wind and the waves, Jesus is there praying. He's actually interceding. Um, and we have the promise today that Jesus is doing that for us as well. So as we go through this story, I want you to put yourself in it. All right? I think that's why we have some of these stories is because they're relatable to our own lives. So you think about... Some of you probably already have some storms or some trials or things that you're, you're facing. And what's God doing through that process for you? But one truth that we can be assured of that's, that's a comfort to us is Jesus, in effect, being off on the mountain praying, we also know that today he intercedes for us. He's at the Father's right hand. It tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it says, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, that's encouraging to me to know that even when my life looks like the disciples out there on the lake, God, Jesus is at the right hand of God, and it, it guarantees us that he makes intercession. He speaks to the Father on your behalf. So that's a truth we don't want to forget. Tuck that in the back of your mind. When things get very difficult, realize that, first of all, Jesus... He intercedes for you. He knows exactly what's coming. In this case, Jesus put them in the situation, but Jesus is not unaware of your situation. He's not unaware of my situation. And even as he sometimes pushes us out of the nest, you know, he stirs the nest knowing that we need to move on. He also gives us uh, the promise that he's going to be interceding for us. <clears throat> Let's look at another observation here. How long do we have to struggle sometimes? 
How long is long enough? Can someone tell me about what time, I think it was said it was the fourth watch. Anybody know about what time of night that is? 3 a.m. Thank you, Mark. So Jesus sent, sends them out. I don't know when the storm came up, but after dark, I'm assuming, this thing is going on. And by the time you get to 3 a.m., this is at full tempest. And it can be very difficult being out in the dark. Uh, I, I have a cousin my age that lives down in, in Florida, in Pensacola, Florida. And I was just with him here about a month ago for an evening. And he had been saying he likes to go out on the open sea and do fishing. And him and some friends here some time ago in the last year decided to go way out to the oil rigs, which is, I don't know, 100 and plus miles away, which I don't know why you'd go that far out to go fishing. But they decided to do that one day. And they get out there to the oil rigs, and most times uh, by, by nightfall, it calms down. And so they were going to fish all night and then come back the next day. Well, they get out there, and the seas were high and heavy. And finally, they decided, this is, we, we need to get out of here. We need to go back for, back for shore. And so they turned and they headed for shore and he said the waves and the wind was, was, was terrible. In fact, there was a few places where, where there was so many waves that where it got shallower, I think the boat hit bottom a little bit as they were getting up closer to shore. And he thought, he said he didn't think we were going to make it. And then you add the darkness of night and you add wind you add, and think of just the confusion. And he said, you know, in his own mind, we're not going to make it back. And it took many, many hours and they did make it back. But I picture the disciples out there struggling like this, and by 3 a.m., you're thinking, I, I don't think we're going to make it. I don't think we're going to get through this. And so think of the mindset of someone who is just about giving up hope and thinking, you know, we're not going to make it through this time. <clears throat> I can't imagine in those moments that they could even have conceived that this was part of the plan, that Jesus actually had this in mind, that you're going to struggle for a while and you're going to have to... Uh, you're going to have to go through this. But sometimes struggle is what we need to mature spiritually and be more useful to Christ. I read a story one time of a, of a young boy who found a cocoon of an emperor moth. I'm not too familiar with the emperor moth, but he took it home and he wanted to watch it emerge. And probably all of you have found a cocoon. Children, you know, it's always fun to go out and find stuff like this. You know, you put it in the jar. And so he puts the thing in the jar and he's going to wait until this thing starts to come out. Well, one day... The, uh, a small opening appeared in the cocoon, and just very small, and he sees this thing starting to push its way out. And after, after hours and hours, it seemed like the more the moth struggled to get out, he just couldn't. He was stuck. And so the boy thought, you know, I'm going to help this thing out. So he goes and gets the scissors, and he goes by the little opening in the cocoon, and he snips away a little bit. And once you know, within a very short time, the moth pushed his way on out of the cocoon, and there it was, fully released from its captivity. Well, by the time it came out, the moth, it, it came out fairly easily, but the body was very large and swollen, and the wings were shriveled up. Well, unknown to this young boy, the process of pushing out of the cocoon is what pushes the fluid from the swollen body out into the wings and gives it the ability to fly. <clears throat> and so what happened, the moth spent the rest of its very short life dragging itself around with a swollen body and shriveled wings instead of developing into a creature that was free to fly the way it was created to be. Turns out that the, the constricting cocoon and the struggle that was necessary to pass through that opening is exactly what the moth needed to gain its wings and to be able to fly. 
again, the struggle is sometimes exactly what we need. And I, most times we probably don't want to choose it, but God in his mercy, he doesn't let us just stay where we're at. He wants us to grow. He wants us to become who God intended us to be. And that's going to mean sometimes pushing through very, very difficult times. <clears throat> what was frightening and undesirable to the disciples at this time became a crucial building block for their preparation for ministry. I imagine for the rest of their lives, they never forgot the night on the lake, the terror, and also what was to come in the end. Our perspective on our problems largely determines whether we will become bitter or better through our difficulties. We may try the shortcut, snip the cocoon, let's make it easier, but God has his, his place in us. And we just got done studying the story of Joseph, or we are, in our Sunday school. And think of how many unknowns were in Joseph's life. How many times did he just think maybe God had abandoned him? And whatever those dreams of childhood were, they're, they're, they're nothing. And yet after such a long time, it just suddenly came to be. And yet God had been there all along, orchestrating events and planning and shaping until the time was right. Just like Joseph, what happens to us is not as important what happens, that is not as, as important as what happens in us. What happens to us is circumstances. It's the externals that are out of our control. What happens in us is our choice. How do we respond to the things that God brings into our life? Think of it like a, having a pot of boiling water. You know, the water is boiling, and there's different things that we have that we put into boiling water that that changes the, the uh, structure of that. Take it, for example, an egg. You drop an egg into boiling water, and in just a few minutes, the egg becomes hard-boiled, right? What about if you drop a potato into water that's boiling? Well, the potato is hard, it softens, and pretty soon you can make mashed potatoes or whatever you want to have out of that. So in some ways, a response like an egg is to become hardened, to become unresponsive. The egg goes from soft to hardened, and that can be the way we react to, to our problems. We become hardened. We, we have a shell around our heart or whatever, however we want to uh, react in that way. Think of the potato that drops in, and that heat and that pressure and all that softens it, becomes pliable, becomes useful in the hand of the one who wants to use it. Very adaptable, resilient. So what makes the difference? How are some Christians able to somehow go through trials and through difficult times and they come out better on the other side. Or others tend to struggle with resentment and bitterness depending how God is, is working with them. What does make the difference? That's a question to think about. Think about it for yourself. What kind of a person am I? How am I coming out of the hard things in my life? Am I more useful in the hand of my king, Jesus, or am I becoming calloused and hardened? And do we have any right to an answer from God for our hardships? Read the book of Job if you want to read more about that. Even Job wanted to <clears throat> have God defend his actions toward Job. But ultimately, Job had a perspective that was a, an eternal perspective. He realized that no matter what he was feeling, and in spite of the things that were being said to him by those around him, his, his friends... He recognized that the purpose of suffering was to refine him. It was to make him come out like gold. And purified gold has to go through heat to get out all the impurities. 
Job saw himself in that way. We can look back on the story and see the whole, the whole thing, but when you're in the middle of it, it's really hard. It's very difficult sometimes to see that God is using this as cleansing. He's using this as preparation. <clears throat> next part here, next observation, number four. Jesus revealed himself to them on the water. These were his words of comfort. So in, in this terror at 3 a.m. in the morning when the storm is at its worst, there comes Jesus, and his words to them are, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. That's some big words. But coming from the master, they mean something. Be of good cheer. This isn't the end. You're not going to sink. Because it is I. You don't need to be afraid. What an encouragement in the middle of very difficult times. Even him saying it is I confirms to his disciples that he's real. You know, in case they thought it's a ghost, Jesus says, hey, it's me. It's me out here. This isn't a ghost. This is me. I am here and I'm going to be with you. And then he says, be not afraid. Why should they not be afraid? They had every reason to fear. If you're in the middle of a lake and the only thing keeping you from the bottom is a couple of two by fours, how would you feel, right? You're, you're, in a bad, you're in a bad strait. But he says, you don't have to be afraid. It doesn't matter what's around you. The presence of Christ is what makes all the difference. Because he's aware of our pain, our difficulty, he knows what we need, and we can trade our problems for his presence. We're about to see what Peter's going to do here, but we can trade our current place of instability, and we can trade that for his presence, which changes our perspective completely on what's happening. Next part in the story here, Peter asked Jesus for confirmation. If it is you, tell me to come. I'm not quite sure what all is happening in Peter's mind here, because out of the 12, he's the only one that asks this. He's the only one that says, tell me to come. But in the middle of all this, he wants Jesus to ask him to come. He doesn't just jump out. He wants Jesus to ask me to come, uh, ask me to, come to you, if it's you. <clears throat> and as they looked at Jesus out on the water, I'm assuming the presence of Jesus in this storm, somewhere just in the vicinity of Jesus, is there's peace. Now, how they could see him through the dark, I'm assuming there was a glow, there was light of some kind. There was enough light to be able to see him. So wherever the presence of Jesus was in that, there was a, a, a place of, of peace, a place of calmness there. And I think Peter sees that, and he says, invite me, Jesus, into that. Why else would you leave a boat in a storm unless you felt like, it, I would rather be in the presence of Jesus than on this little craft that seems very, very uh, unstable. I don't know why the other uh, 11 didn't ask the same thing, but that's not what happened. Jesus invites Peter and he says, come. Well, there you have it. Here comes the invitation and Peter steps out. And I was trying to think, as I was thinking through this, this story and trying to think on what is it that we're supposed to learn from this? What, is the, what are the lessons that are to be learned in a story like this? I thought, you know, the, the place of the boat in this, in this storm or in this story really can be like a place of fear. We already talked about the tumult, all, everything that's happening. And when you're at a place in life where, where fear is gripping you or you're fearful of moving forward in some, maybe in making a decision or you're just fearful in general, you fear and you see the presence of Jesus say, I would, I would rather have what I see as peace 
stability. I'd rather have that than this place of where, I'm, where I feel like I'm trapped in fear. But the only way you can move from this place of fear, this boat, is to have enough faith that he's going to be the one that can sustain me here. I can't, I, I almost can't fathom. Peter just, he, he gets the invitation and then he just, that leg goes over the side of the boat. He's going to move on out there. And that's water. That's just water. Peter knew it was water. But that's an act of faith. That is a tremendous act of faith. Peter swings his leg over the boat and he says, I'm going to go to my master. And he had enough faith to do it. And it says he started to walk on water. I don't know in history if there's any other man. We, we know Jesus did it, son of God, but Peter did it. I don't know of any other man that has walked on water. Maybe you do, but I've, I've never read another story like that. Peter walks on top of water. Water does not hold up a man, not above water. Maybe you can float in it, but you can't walk on it unless you have the power of God. And Peter had it and says he began to take steps at the invitation of Jesus. Moving from a place of fear and in faith, moving to the one to whom he can trust. Picture that in your own life. Moving from fear. What does it take to move from that place of fear to the place where I can experience the presence of Jesus? took a step of faith. I'm not saying the other 11 didn't have faith, but they didn't exercise it in that moment. Peter swings his leg out over the side, and Peter walks on water. It's amazing. The thing is, sometimes when we want to leave from that place of fear, we're going to have to step into uh, places that we are very uncomfortable we're going to have to leave the boat. <clears throat> as unstable as that boat may have seemed in that moment, that boat was tossing. And I said it was just, you know, maybe a couple two-by-fours strung together. That's a crude way of saying it. But really, is that what you want to depend on to keep you from, from heading to the bottom of the lake? And yet, that's how we operate sometimes. We may fear to trust God. We may fear to put completely all our eggs in that basket, figuratively speaking. But which would be safer ultimately? Am I going to hang on to that thing that's, that's very, uh, very crude and unstable? Or can I anchor faith and trust in the one who, who made the seas? And, we're going to, and we find out later in the story how Jesus actually can speak to the seas. And it changes their dynamic immediately. That boat for you might be all kinds of different things. Could be self-reliance on your own abilities. I can do this. I got it. I can handle my life. I got my little boat here. It's pretty rocky and we're, you know, but I'm okay. And sometimes we do that without thinking. We internally say, no, I'd rather trust what I can control. And maybe that's how those other 11 disciples thought of the boat. Of all things out on the sea, the one thing they had control over to some degree was the boat. You can always, you know, steer it or try to mess with the sail or do something to try to just maneuver this storm. That's the one thing that's in your control. When Peter steps out and when his hand finally leaves the boat, all control is lost. Peter has no more devices of his own because now he's, he's walking on water, which is clearly not his own power. And he has, he's lost touch of the very thing that maybe he wouldn't hold on to, but he's now let that go. And so as he walks by faith, Jesus gives him the power to walk on water. There's such a, there's such a thin line between faith and doubt. Faith allowed him to stay on top. 
doubt as he begins to look around and he begins to see his surroundings. What comes back? Fear. And I don't know if there was an impulse in Peter to just turn and lunge back for the boat and grab it. I don't know how far away Jesus was. But maybe Peter was, he was, maybe he was halfway there. Maybe he got far enough away that I can't go back, but I'm not there yet. And all of a sudden, he, there's self-awareness comes and he realizes, I've got, I've got nothing. <laughs> I am high and dry here. I've got nothing. And he starts to sink because the thing that held him up was faith. But when fear came in, fear and faith do not coexist. And he begins to sink. Relying on our own abilities, our resources, our talents, eventually will fail us. But even sometimes, like Peter, you take that step of faith. Fear always is there lurking, wanting to grab you and pull you back in. I think that's what's happening here. Because Peter had faith. There's no question he had faith. But when the moment comes, when suddenly his eyes stray for a little bit from the one who his faith was anchored in, Christ, Jesus, in person, in the flesh, out on the lake, when his, when his eyes turned from that and they began to look around again, then doubts and fears came back in and they caused him to slip back underneath the water. Well, in his desperation, <clears throat> he cries out, Lord, save me. Oh, wow. I hope that's our impulse. Jesus, save me. I need help here. And the beauty in this story Jesus is there immediately. Peter doesn't drown. He doesn't sink below the waves where he can't get up. Peter, or Jesus steps over and he hauls him right back up. Now, I don't know if it really says. I'm assuming they walked together back to the boat. I don't know that Jesus carried him. He might have. But picture with me again as Jesus picks up Peter. They're back up on solid water. And they walk together back toward the boat. And I think the two of them just crawled back in just like, you know, just like you'd crawl in a boat, except they come off of the top of water. So Peter had faith to do it. He falters. Jesus comes, rescues, and together they again walk the same path and they go back to the boat. <clears throat> now there's a rebuke in here, and I, I, I wrestle with this rebuke a little bit. Why does Jesus rebuke Peter? Oh, you of little faith. I don't know of anyone else who's walked on water. Why does he rebuke him? I'm not sure if I have quite all the answers there. But I believe it has something to do with that, that line between faith and doubt, or faith and fear. When Jesus says, you just, Peter, you just saw what happens when you have faith. You were walking on water, did you see? Peter, and you looked around, and you went from faith, and you went right back to fear, and you went right back to doubt. Peter, why'd you do it? I think Jesus, in the most loving way, is saying, Peter, why did you doubt? You, you, you were there. Why did you doubt? And he draws him back up. <clears throat> There's no rebuke for the rest of the disciples who didn't even try it. But I think there was enough of a glimpse there. He says, Peter, you can have this. You can walk by faith. You don't have to give in to your doubts and fears. There are some lessons to be learned here. <clears throat> the first lesson I want to just briefly mention is faith. Peter's ability to walk on water came 
from his faith in the invitation of Jesus. When Jesus said, yes, come, Peter by faith said, yes, I will, I will follow my Lord's invitation. And he goes towards him. There's faith. There were many reasons not to leave the boat. And you ask the other 11 disciples, they could have given you 11 reasons why you shouldn't leave the boat. But he did because he had faith in the one who was bringing the invitation. And he let go of that last place of safety. So we have a lesson on faith. We have also a lesson on overcoming fear. Fear is the enemy of faith. I already mentioned that. When Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, back to his circumstances, then he sinks. Same for us. When we fixate our eyes on the storm, and that storm can be your circumstances, it can be your trial, it can be your hard thing. When we look at that, then fear and doubt wants to creep in. When we look at Christ, we turn to him and we ask him for help, then faith is restored. Faith is rebuilt. When we by faith turn our gaze to Jesus instead, we exchange our fear for his peace. We exchange the boat for the presence of Jesus. If you're living, if, if you're living your life and, and you're in the boat, you haven't left that, there's so much turmoil and tumult that can happen there between fear and doubt and all these things. And Jesus invites you to leave a boat, leave the boat, and in faith, go where he is, where there's peace. And he gives, if you, can, if you can come by faith, then he gives you the power to do that. But when we get our eyes back on circumstances and we let that dominate our fixation, then we're going we're gonna to give in to fear. And one of the more beautiful parts of this story, another lesson, is there is immediate help. There is immediate help when we cry out. Peter in his humanity let his eyes falter, just like many of us have done. But the moment he cries out for rescue, Jesus is there and brings him right back up. Peter, come right back up. You can stay up here, but you call out for him, and he brings immediate help. I couldn't, think, I couldn't help but think of the verse in Psalm uh, 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A very present help. So the moment that Peter is out there walking, or as we are, as we are stepping out in faith, there is a present help waiting for you to call out when you need help. He's right there in time of trouble. Don't run back to the boat and try to do it your own way. We do that so many times. Rather than just calling out for God, help me. I need help here. We go back to the, the patterns we used to have. And those are dominated by fear and doubt. Call out to him. He's a very present help in trouble. Faith is a very powerful force in overcoming the troubles and storms of life. And catch this. Faith brings freedom. Fear paralyzes us and brings bondage. Faith will bring you freedom because it's anchored in the one who has the ability to free you. But fear takes us back into bondage. There's no power in fear. Fear is a motivator, but not to motivate us towards Christ and to freedom. There's also the connection to love. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So there again, you have that anchoring of love. So faith is, is what drives away fear, but it's because it's anchored in a love relationship with Christ. Peter loved his master dearly. That's why he was able to have faith in him. Had a stranger showed up on the waters that night, I don't think Peter would have been itching to get out of the boat. 
but it was anchored in the one who he knew and whom the one he loved. And it says here, perfect love casts out fear, but it takes faith sometimes. We have to exercise that faith. A couple just practical things to think about before we close here this morning. What boat are you in? What are you facing? What troubles are you experiencing? What are you hanging on to for your own safety? And what are you doing with the problems and the hard things that God brings in life? Because those things actually become tools when they're used in the hands of our master. They become the tools that help us grow. Like the eagle who stirs up the nest and gets the young out there. God brings these things into our lives as potential refining tools if we allow him to use them for that, uh, for our benefit. But the difference is this. Problems help us grow when we respond in faith instead of react in fear. Responding in faith instead of reacting in fear. I didn't look these words up, but there is, I believe, a subtle difference between responding and reacting. Often reacting is an impulse. Uh, if someone startles you, you react. You know, it's just your, your protection. And when things are coming at us in life and we have all this stuff happening, often we react because it, it hurts and it's, un, it's unpleasant and it's just, and our reaction can be fear. It can be whatever it is. Uh, it's just whatever's coming at us. We have no ability to, to face that thing if we're simply reacting. But when we res- responding is a choice. Responding is, okay, this is coming. This is happening. What do I do? What am I going to do? In Peter's case, he was sinking. His response was crying out to Jesus, Lord, save me. I need help. And so in these things, when things are coming to you, our response is, again, getting our eyes back to the one who has the power to do something about it. So if you're experiencing some very difficult times, uh, God is not unaware. But the response of faith is we have to, again, fix our eyes on him and say, because of the fact I can trust my master, I love him. I know he loves me and I have a relationship with him. So I know, I know this, the source with which I'm going to anchor my faith is secure. Then I got to keep going back to that. And sometimes that's a, that's a, that might be a daily choice. It might be a hourly choice. If you've ever been in a crisis that's very hard and you just feel overwhelmed, sometimes you make that choice continually throughout a day, continually saying, Lord, I, I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you because what I'm feeling is that I want, I want to run or I want to, whatever emotions that we may be feeling, uh, we have these reactionary emotions. We have to turn to Christ and respond to him. And it takes faith to do that. Faith enough to believe that he can be trusted. Faith in his love for me. The security of knowing I'm his. That's also an act of faith. And that's a response. So a couple things here I want to mention. Uh, problems often provide us with greater opportunities. You know, we don't often think of this in the moment, but you know, that, that night on the lake for those disciples, I don't know, I, I wonder, and this is just surmising, I wonder how many times they told that story from that time on. Can you imagine them in some of their future ministry saying, you know what, let me tell you about a night out on the lake. And they saw Jesus, and they saw Peter step out, and they saw him, they saw that whole thing as observers. And it gave them a glimpse and a picture of this is how God operates. This is what happens when you have faith. And this is what happens when you have fear. And, and some of those problems we experience, while we would never choose them, I would never choose them. They become a source for, uh, by which we have other opportunities to speak into other people's lives. 
So your unique experiences in life, they may feel unique to you, but I'm sure there's someone else that's faced the same thing, and there's something of encouragement you can bring to them. And, and God sometimes orchestrates events where you have influence in the life of another. God worked in your life this way, and you see the same need elsewhere, and you can step in and say, you know, here's what God did in my life. Or you've experienced loss. There's some losses here just this morning. Gives you the ability to speak into those who have also experienced loss. Greater opportunities. Problems can promote our spiritual maturity. I already mentioned Joseph. Uh, Psalm 105 talks about Joseph. And an interesting, this is in the New King James, a couple verses here. This is talking about the fact that God had to prepare, and, uh, had to prepare something to rescue and save Israel, all right, from famine. So here's like God's view of the whole thing, not even looking at it necessarily from Joseph's view, but God sends a man ahead. And in Psalm, it says, uh, 105, 17, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Until the time that his word came to pass. God had a, had a long-term plan, but during the time that the plan is unfolding and finally comes to fruition, you know what's happening during that time? It says, the word of the Lord tested him. Testing is part of the process. And even if we don't understand where we're at in the process, we can have faith that God has a plan. And I can have faith that he's going to execute his plan according to his purposes. So for me, it means yielding myself, saying, God, what do you want to do with me in this? I don't see the big plan, but I, I believe it's there. And that's what Joseph did. So these problems can promote our spiritual maturity. By the time Joseph comes out on the other side, he is well fit and well qualified to be a ruler in Egypt and to save many people. But I think it took the process to get him there, to get him to a place of, of utter dependence on God. Problems prove our integrity. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's coming on the heels of him saying that you're going to suffer persecution. Uh, you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. God uses those things to, to cleanse us, to get rid of some of the, the junk that we still have. So let those things be a cleansing agent in your life. Encourage you. Problems produce a sense of dependence. These are continual reminders from God that we are weak in our own strength. I don't think that takes a lot of uh, defining there. You know, what, you know what that's all about. That feeling that I need God. I can't, my resources have run out. Problems prepare our hearts for ministry. I already mentioned this a little bit on the first one, but there is a, a place where as we experience things, we build an empathy. If it's suffering, you have empathy for those who suffer. If it's loss, and those, it, it prepares us and we can understand uh, what people's needs are as God does some of those things in our own lives. And the last one here is our problems can prompt us to cling to the Lord. And I just want you to get that picture of Peter as he, has, he, he took the step of faith. But when he's out there, it starts going south. And he's going down. And when he cries out to Jesus, Jesus comes. And I think as Jesus got there, I, I imagine if I was going down, man, I'd be grabbing. And I can see Peter just clinging on to Jesus. And in a sense, that's what, it, that's what can be accomplished in us. If we respond in faith... Don't just give in to fear and doubt. We can cling to the Lord and he can use those problems as a way to draw us to him. I read a quote here by uh, B. Launderville. 
goes like this. The vine clings to the oak during the fiercest of storms. Although the violence of nature may uproot the oak, twining tendrils still cling to it. If the vine is on the side opposite the wind, the great oak is its protection. If it is on the exposed side, the tempest only presses it closer to the trunk. In some of the storms of life, God intervenes and he shelters us. While in others, he allows us to be exposed so that we will be pressed more closely to him. Sometimes God does intervene when we ask him to, and he stops the tumult, whatever you're experiencing. Other times, God lets you go through it because he knows it's the very thing you need to press him more closely to himself. That sense of utter dependence on Christ. As you think about the rest of this next year, you think about how does God want to use me this year? Are you giving in to doubts and fears? Are you able to walk by faith? And I hope as you see what God has ahead, that you have the courage to step out. Maybe God is calling you to something that you've been resisting. You know what this boat may be in your life. It might be doubts and fears. It might also be just resisting what you think God is asking you to do in your own life. But I'm asking you this morning to consider, step out in faith. Let God be the one who leads you. Let the troubles of life be the thing that bring you close to himself. Let him be the one who anchors your faith. Let's pray.